Amen, amen. Hey, uh, I got this interesting email this uh, last week, and it said, hey, you have a distant relative in Europe who left you a huge inheritance. And they just said, they will, will deposit in your bank account, just give us your routing number. So I'm waiting for it this next week. And uh, I didn't get, a, I, I've gotten emails like that, but the, the question I want to open up with, has you, have you ever gotten a legitimate letter in the mail that uh, was life-changing? Or maybe an email too that was life-changing, maybe from the IRS or from, you you, you you were accepted into this university, or you were rejected, or maybe you got a Dear John letter, or Dear Johnny Baby letter, in my case, huh? Because, uh, anyway, my wife, my wife sent me letters when she was traveling around the country, and I, I do remember opening up the mailbox and, and, and just waiting for another letter when snail mail was the thing back then from my wife, because when I opened it and read it, it was as if she were there in, with me. And, and it was the way we uh, stayed in contact primarily as she was traveling in a singing group around the country. I just felt really appreciative of those letters. They were life-giving. Well, in, we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is really a letter that Paul wrote to the church the believers, not the church, but the believers scattered in the Rome, Rome and the Roman Empire. And uh, so we're going to look at this, and it was life-changing for them as the book of Romans in, in our Bible has been life-changing for many people in the past. For example, Martin Luther, who was the spearheader of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther came to Christ after reading Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith thus establishing the Protestant Reformation from the corrupt church in those days. And then John Wesley, while listening uh, to a teacher teach and read from Luther's commentary, his heart was stirred and he accepted Christ and it began a Wesleyan revival movement in England. And then a guy named St. Augustine, by the way, Augustine is a city and Augustine is a man. St. Augustine, so said my college professor. So St. Augustine, he was, uh, he was living a pretty worldly lifestyle into his, I guess, 20s or 30s or whatnot. And, uh, and he was feeling pretty empty when he heard out the window a child singing, pick it up and read, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And he thought this was maybe a word from God. And so he turned and, and grabbed a nearby Bible and he opened it up. The first place he opened it was Romans 13. It said, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, immorality and debauchery and dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he surrendered his life to Christ as well. Well, the book, book of Romans is a powerful letter that many have read and meditated on in, in the centuries and has changed countless lives. We'll be spending time in Romans, and it's my prayer that our lives will be changed as a result of reading through this book together. And I want to encourage you to read through uh, the chapter in advance before the sermon and the teaching so that you're more familiar and you can digest what God is saying to you from week to week. So this morning we're starting in Romans, first half of Romans 1, 
And uh, we're going to look at the context to which Paul is writing. Paul, in Romans 1.1, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul was writing this letter after, sometime after he was known as Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of Christ's followers. He would have been like the terrorist today. He was literally killing Christians and arresting them, and he hated the movement of Christ and his followers. He thought he was doing God's work. But when he was on the road leading to Damascus where he was going to arrest more Christians and haul them in, and uh, the Lord met him in a vision, came as a bright light on this road, which kind of fell him to to the road. And he heard this voice coming up from heaven. And he said, who are you? Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, this led to three days of blindness because of the bright light, where Paul had three days just to sit there and think about his life. It led to repentance and giving his life over to Jesus Christ. And and he became converted. He started to follow the very person he was persecuting. He was against. In verse 5, he was called to be uh, an apostle by Jesus to the Gentiles. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. God has called me to reach you, Romans. And he's calling me to give you a word. Before Jesus ascended, the disciples asked him, when are you going to return? And Jesus said, hey, before I return, know this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my uh, disciples. You, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Well, this was the ends of the earth, these Roman citizens. These were the Gentiles that God had given this great commission to, his disciples. Well, how did Christianity get to Rome from all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. Most believe that there were those from Rome who would have been in attendance on the day of Pentecost some 23 years earlier. In AD 33 then, uh, and when they experienced Pentecost, they surrendered their lives to Christ and brought the gospel to Rome. And they didn't set up a church there. Rather, they began to meet in little groups of friends like house house fellowship groups, and so the church wasn't one established building in Rome or gathering, but it was spread out through Rome. So this is who Paul was writing to in verse 7. He said, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, called to be saints. I hope I am a saint someday. Well, we don't need to hope for it because the moment you met Christ, you you became a saint, a holy one. A separated one, it means. Saint is not some exceptional Christian who inherits sainthood after their death because people vote on them. 
Rather, a saint is a holy one made righteous by Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. These believers in Rome were called saints. They were not called because they were saints. They became saints because they were called. And if you are called to be a Christ follower, then you are a saint. Your little grandchild or child is a saint. Think about that next time they disobey. They're saints. He goes on to say, grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always grace and peace that Paul extends. Grace and peace. It's never peace and grace because grace always precedes peace. If we want to experience peace in our lives, it will come because of God's grace. And the acronym for grace is God's resources at Christ's expense or God's righteousness, one or the other. All of his resources, including his perfect peace, come as a result of his grace, that gift given to us. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter from Corinth in AD 56, and a sister in Christ named Phoebe would deliver it to Rome. She would be the mail carrier, if you will. But Paul wanted to give these believers in Rome more, more than just a letter. He longed to visit them. He wanted to be with them to encourage them and strengthen their hearts. I remember getting letters from Lynn in the mail, and I loved it, but even more so when I was able to visit her. She was on a singing group that toured around the country for a couple of years, and I was a youth pastor in Salina, and I remember her calling one day on the, on the landline phone and letting me know that she'll be passing through Nebraska, and they have the day off and the next day, and so I thought, I'll be there. And so at 8 p.m. on like a Monday night, I hopped in my car, and I drove to Nebraska. I stopped in Concordia, got some gas. I pulled off in a truck stop somewhere in Nebraska on one of those exit stops, and I took a nap for a couple hours, drove the rest of the way to her town in Nebraska, and so I was able to spend the next day with her. It was wonderful to be with her because God had placed a great love in my heart for Lynn, as she was my girlfriend at the time, and my heart responded accordingly. And this is what Paul wanted for his, the people in Rome. His heart was filled with love for these people. He longed to be with them. So that's the first half of, the, of this Romans 1. I want us to, to now look at Paul's heart for the believers in Rome a heart that had been changed by Jesus and filled with the love of Christ. He felt what Jesus felt for them. Again, formerly Paul had hated these Christians, but now he longed to see them saved. He wanted to encourage them and strengthen them. And I'd like us to consider, do, ask this question, do we have the heart of the Apostle Paul? Do we have the heart of Christ when it comes to others. Uh, I want us to assess if our hearts resemble that of Paul. So let's look at the heart of Paul in starting in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit is preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. So let's go on to the next slide, Charles. Um, what is Paul's heart? 
Paul's heart, first of all, was a heart filled with thanksgiving. It was a thankful heart. In verse 8 again, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Paul had never met most of these believers in Rome yet, but God had given him such a love for them that his heart overflowed with thanksgiving because of the faith that uh, these Christians had. He could have legitimately complained all about Rome because Rome was a corrupt place. In Rome, there was rampant sexual sin, both heterosexual and homosexual sin. There was young male prostitutes that was legitimized by the government. There was rampant pornography. The Roman emperor Nero, he grabbed a slave boy and he castrated him. His name was uh, Sporus, and he made him his wife. And, And this was typical for these Roman emperors. It was just rampant with sexual sin. There was also slavery and ethnic and religious discrimination. There was political corruption and persecution against believers. Well, we have much to complain about in our day as well as we look at our culture and the corruption in our world. And we can spend our days complaining and griping. But as Christ followers, I think God would have us be filled with thanksgiving instead of criticism and complaint. In fact, he wrote to the church in Thessalonica later, he wrote, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever wondered what God's will is? Well, you don't need to wonder any longer. It is to give thanks, to rejoice always, to pray continually. It doesn't say give thanks for all things, but give thanks in all circumstances. A thankful heart implies giving thanks, which means expressing thanks. It means conveying thanks. It means verbalizing thanks. It means um, expressing it, offering thanks. And oftentimes we think thankful thoughts, but we don't express it. And I think God wants us to be people who express thanksgiving rather than complaint. And for that, we will stick out like a sore thumb in a culture like ours. Paul expressed thanks to God for his faithful people in Rome. When people in our community or nearby communities hear that I work at Countryside Covenant Church, then oftentimes they say, man, I know so-and-so from your church or that person. You have, a, you have a really good church. You have a good reputation in town because of your people. To which I respond, thanks. Hey, that's, that's awesome. I feel very privileged. And then I respond to God. I, I direct my thanks to God because God has filled this church and has blessed me as one of the pastors here. Just, I just feel so thankful When I was on sabbatical, I wasn't so thankful for a while, though, as you know. You've heard ad nauseum that I I got sick. Um, But someone challenged me and encouraged me to compile a list of things I was thankful for. Don't focus on all the negative. Focus on things you can be thankful for. And I came up with a long list, and I prayed those uh, prayers of thanksgiving on a regular basis during my sabbatical because in doing so, it changed my thinking which then changed my feeling. And uh, in this next slide here, uh, campus life 
or Campus Crusade illustration, I think. Fact, faith, feeling. Fact is always the engine and feeling is always the caboose. The fact is the truth. If you focus on the truth and if you act accordingly in faith, then the feelings will follow. By the way, if you're married or if you plan to be married one day, you'll know that love is primarily not a feeling. It's a truth that you act upon. And in so acting upon, in loving and doing loving things in action, then your feelings will often follow. And so I did this. Uh, I, I thank God, even though I didn't feel like thanking him. And in so doing, it began to change my heart and my feeling and began to set me free. Paul had a thankful heart. Paul also had, secondly, a praying heart. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Constantly, I'm praying at all times. How can we possibly constantly pray at all times, pray without ceasing? I can't do that. But praying without ceasing is not so much about hitting my knees and by my bed and praying and praying and praying. Or It's an attitude attitude of prayer. Sort of like we looked at a couple of weeks ago from Anne Lamott, her book, Help, Thanks, Wow. Help me, God. Thank you, God. Wow, God. Right there, you've prayed three legitimate prayers. An attitude of thanking, of praying or praising, asking for help. A heart that doesn't pray will be a heart that is filled with worry eventually. <clears throat> like a guy who was a worry wart, <clears throat> excuse me, he came into work every day and he, his head was down, um, his, his face was scowling, his shoulders were crunched over, and he was just filled with worry. And it was noticeable. But one day he walked into work and he had a huge smile on his face and his head was, was straight up and his shoulders were back and Everybody noticed what a difference it made in his life. And one of his coworkers asked, what's up with you? He said, well, I got an idea and I hired a guy to worry for me. Oh, that's, well, how much do you have to pay a guy like that for? He said, $5,000 a week. His coworker said, you can't afford $5,000 a week. We don't make that much. He said, well, that's not my worry, it's his. We have a Savior who is faithful to carry all of our worries and our sorrows and our burdens. Peter put it this way, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Cast, boom, I'm going to lay them down at your altar. Take them because you care for me, you provide for me. You have a praying heart. Thirdly, Paul had a submissive heart in verse 10. And I pray that now at last by God's will that the way may be open for me to come to you. And then verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. In other words, Paul's saying, man, I, I really want to come to you, but it's not God's will yet. I've been prevented from coming to you, but I pray that soon I'll be able to come to you. I'm waiting on God's will. Henry Blackaby wrote a book called Experiencing God, and it has to do in large part with 
finding out God's will. And Henry Blackaby says in his book, he said, the wrong prayer to pray is, Lord, what is your will for my life? That's the wrong prayer. The right prayer is, Lord, what is your will? Period. Question mark, then period. (laughs) What is your will? Because following God's will, discerning God's will from his word, and then aligning our lives with his will is his will for us. So there's a subtle difference between what is God's will for my life and my plans and what is God's will. Paul sensed that after writing this letter to the Roman church from Corinth, that he needed to go to Jerusalem before visiting them in Rome because he needed to uh, deliver an urgent offering for these suffering Christians in Jerusalem. And God had made it clear to him that he had to do that. So he stopped by Jerusalem first in AD 57. And uh, Paul didn't expect, though, that he'd be arrested and incarcerated for two years in Caesarea because he was preaching the gospel there in, in Jerusalem. So he eventually would have to appeal to Caesar in his court case. And when he did, they would transport him to Rome, not as a missionary, but as a prisoner in chains. So the Lord's will was accomplished through this prisoner in chains. Romans 8, 28, God works all things out for the good. And when Paul arrived in Rome, he said, I'm here, I'm a prisoner, but I'm here and I love being with you. And once he was released in Rome, then he went on to continue his work in Rome for the next seven years before his death. Paul had a submissive heart. It was submissive to God's timing and his will for his life. And I wonder if we are that patient to wait on God's will. Fourth, Paul had a giving heart in verse 11. I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul wanted to impart a gift. It wasn't a spiritual gift as in hospitality or, or teaching or craftsmanship. It was rather the spiritual gift, namely, that he wanted to encourage them, strengthen them, and establish a mutual relationship of encouragement with them. And after all, this is what Christ's church is all about, isn't it? Church is not about a place or a building. Are you going to go to church today? I'm going to go. I don't go to church. It's not, that's not what church is primarily. Church is a people. It's us. It's the body of Christ, the family of God. That is what the church is. And if you were to ask someone, why aren't you in a church anymore, a typical response would be, I just don't get anything out of it anymore. You know, the music isn't my style. The preaching isn't my taste. The relationships, well, when I go, no one ever reaches out to me, me, me. It's all about me. The music doesn't suit me. The preaching doesn't suit me. I don't have, that's not what church is about. The church is about you and others. It's about giving. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. The reason we come to church is to give to God and worship to give to one another an encouragement using our gifts and our service and our encouragement and our friendship and our fellowship. 
And that's why our mission statement looks like this. We are a community growing in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ as we worship, disciple, serve, and multiply. Worship is giving to God, and the next three are giving to one another in the name of Christ. It's all about giving. That's why we belong to a church like this. My parents and Lynn's parents were always the last people to leave our respective churches, I learned from my wife. And when I met Lynn's parents, they were a lot like my parents. They were always the last ones to leave because they were busy meeting people, greeting them, encouraging them, talking to them, on and on and on. They weren't the first to rush out. I got what I want, I'm gone, boom. No, they were always there, and the custodian was saying, flick, 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 gotta lock the doors, okay. As a kid, it was torture. I wanted to go home. But they demonstrated a giving heart to Lynn and me, and I think that's why we're both in ministry today, as we are, and we love the local church. My question is, are you modeling this type of giving heart to your kids and grandkids? your younger siblings. And then finally, Paul not only had a giving heart, he had an obligated heart. My last point. He said, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Uh, and, and then... Uh, and the New Living Translation said, for I have a great sense of obligation to people, both civilized and uncivilized, educated and uneducated. Why did Paul have such an obligation? Because he realized that when he was heading in the wrong direction as an enemy of God and Christ, that God reached down by his grace and chose him to be his child and redirected him onto God's course. His life was saved not only temporarily, but for eternally. And so Paul recognized that he was indebted to live according to that calling. That's why Paul said in verse 1, I, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and I was set apart for the gospel of God. God's chosen instrument as an ambassador for God's good news, the gospel of God. You know, I was chosen as a patrol boy when I was in fifth grade, and I was thrilled that I was one of the few chosen to go out early before the bell rang and come back, come into, in the first thing in the morning, come into school after the bell rang because I was a patrol boy. And I stood at the corner for all those kindergartners and first graders, and it was a matter of life and death. They could have run straight in the middle of the street and getting hit by a bus, but no, I wouldn't let them go because I was a responsible patrol boy. I had my badge, I had my belt, I hung it up proudly, and I loved it. I wanted to please my teacher and my principal. I wanted to be known as a faithful patrol boy. It was a matter of life and death. Well, we have something far greater than physical life and death. It's a matter of eternal life, eternal death. The very people that you're around every day are on a trajectory toward eternal life or eternal separation from God. And God says, you are my ambassadors. You have an obligation. You do not belong to you anymore. You belong to me. And that's what Paul said in Corinthians. He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 
Are you cognizant of the, of the great obligation and responsibility that you have in your sphere of influence on a daily basis? So, do your heart, hearts resemble that of the Apostle Paul who resembled our Lord Jesus? Our heart check. Are they thankful hearts? Are your hearts praying hearts? Are they submissive hearts, submissive to God's will? Are they giving hearts rather than getting all that you can get out of life? And are they obligated because you've been chosen and given a responsibility? My concluding thought is this, and and we'll carry on next week. We can either be filled with with, uh, pride Man, I, I got all five of these in spades, man. I, I'm your exemplary Christian guy or, or woman. You can be filled with pride. Look at all I've accomplished. That would be uh, a self-image. That would be what? I forgot the word I used. It'd just be a prideful self-image, I guess. Or you could be filled with discouragement. Man, I don't measure up. I fall so far short and you could have an unhealthy self-image. But I think God would want us to have a godly self-image, one that recognizes that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, but with Christ, we can do all things because he strengthens us. And so I don't want us being discouraged by make this sermon into a morality of five little rules I have to obey in my heart to be a good Christian because that would be discouraging. Either it'll fill us with pride and arrogance like the Pharisees had or it'd fill us with despair. But God says, no, what I call you to, I empower you to do by my indwelling spirit. That's the gospel part of this message, that we are empowered to do the work that God calls us to do because of his spirit living in and through us. So let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus, we offer you ourselves once again, and during this time of communion with you, we ask you to fill us with your spirit anew today in where we fall short in any of these heart areas. I pray, God, that you fill us, forgive us, renew us, and uh, empower us, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being here. In Christ's name, amen.